So welcome to the Chaka Life podcast. Today I have Tori Hogan, um, and she has had an interesting and varied life, which goes a lot with the sort of Chaka Life uh, philosophy. She's worked as an aid worker, a volunteer in international situations, a researcher, an author, a filmmaker, and she's traveled around the world, been on all the continents, and um, likes to really travel with purpose. So welcome so much, Tori. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. <laughs> so why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got started um, with your travels overseas? Because you've been a longtime traveler, um, and then it's kind of uh, morphed into a bunch of other things. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, when people hear how many places I've been, they always ask, oh, so your parents were travelers, right? <laughs> And actually, that wasn't the case at all. Um, I didn't grow up in a family that traveled. My dad was in the Air Force, but we only moved every four years and only in the U.S. Um, so I didn't really have that. But when I was in preschool, I would come in uh, to class every day. And my first thing I would do is trace the map of the world. <laughs> it was like my obsessive thing that I just love tracing the map of the world. I think I could write the word Antarctica before I could properly write my full name. And um I was fascinated by the world, and I think it's important to kind of clue into those early signs of what really lights you up, and that for me was it. I was really curious about other cultures and people and places, and I wanted to see all of these places. So when I was, um, I think, 11, I had this wonderful opportunity to go with my sixth grade teacher to Russia, which is kind of a weird first country, but uh, she was from Armenia and had spent a lot of time in Russia, and um, it just opened my eyes that there were people that spoke different languages and ate different food and everything looked different. Um, and so it was uh, pretty much uh, you know, a done deal at that point that that was going to be something that would be a big part of my life. Uh, so I just became creative. I found ways throughout high school to get to different parts of the world. I designed my own internship in Oxford. Um, I later figured out my own volunteer work in Togo before that was really a thing that was done. Now it's very easy to find volunteer opportunities abroad, but back then it really wasn't the case. Um, you know, and then I studied abroad in Uganda, traveled all throughout college in different ways, either volunteering or doing research or, again, designing my own internships abroad. Um, and, yeah, the whole of my 20s were really spent almost entirely overseas, and uh, it's become a huge part of who I am. Well, what's interesting is... It doesn't seem like you ever just, um, you know, you didn't kind of do that big backpack trick trip where you're going from pub to pub. You started off with some pretty heady stuff. I mean, there was the Russia thing, but then later on, your summer internships um, as a teenager in the UK and Togo. Tell me a little bit about what those in entailed and how you how you designed them and made them happen. Sure. I'm just not the type of person that can do meaningless travel. I've <laughs> I've tried it very rarely, and it doesn't work so well for me because um, it doesn't feel authentic. Uh, it do I don't see the purpose of going that far away to do what I could do at home. You know, I would much rather be interacting with local people and really having a unique and inspired um, experience. So uh, for me, going to Oxford, um, nobody told me that I couldn't do it, and I'm <laughs> You know, I didn't realize that it was such a big deal at 16 to be, you know, I, had, I was kind of a super nerd at the time and I was already doing um, genetics research at 16 at the National Institutes of Health. And um, I thought it would be really cool to do that somewhere else. So I wrote letters to all these doctors at Oxford begging them to let me come uh, for the summer to be an intern. And it was just all these personalized letters sent to all these doctors, and most of them didn't reply. Some replied no. Wow. And one out of all of these letters wrote back said, and said, sure, you know, you can come, no problem. I just got a grant. I'll help you out, whatever. Wow. And so I get off the bus in Oxford, and her jaw drops because I told her that I was a student with X, you know, experience. 
I didn't mention which kind of student. <laughs> <laughs> here, here comes a 16-year-old kid, right? She thought I was a graduate student. Wow. And uh, yeah, so I had to kind of prove myself in the lab that, that summer. And it was just an incredible experience. And she really, um, you know, allowed me to blossom in my science research at the time. Uh, a similar thing happened in Togo where we reached out to, you know, some ambassadors along with my, my dear friend um, in high school. And we just made the opportunity happen. It didn't exist. We had to create it ourselves. Well, I mean, that's one of the things that I really encourage is don't be afraid to contact people. Of course, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And and people are flattered when you actually think of them and, and you want to work with them. But that was that was something different. I think now there are all these sort of um, design designer kind of travel experiences for teenagers. And I love that teenagers are going overseas, but I also worry a little bit that they're not doing anything. They're still in this box sort of whenever they go somewhere and they're on a big, you know, trip and um, something like what you did is, is just mind blowing and will open up so many more opportunities. Um, So I would, I would encourage that still just to look at, look at things out there and, and try to work with anyone. I mean, it, it can be done. Oh, absolutely. And I found that my best experiences were not the canned, you know, sign up and go on X trip, you know, but it really was a, the, the self-created, um, this is my curiosity, how do I make it happen type of trips that really meant the most to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, for younger listeners who are interested in doing that sort of thing, um, I do think it's incredibly important to know yourself well enough by that time to know what you're capable of. Because I don't want to encourage students who don't really feel like they have the level of maturity, uh, you know, in order to really handle those kinds of situations abroad. So you do have to have a a very high level of trust, particularly with your parents when you're that young, you know, and that they would encourage you to go to another country because they know you're not going to do anything stupid. Right. Um, So I never did anything to, you know, ruin the trust that I'd gained in my parents. Um, Well, what do you... That's a big one. Yeah. What do you think set you apart that made you feel and your parents feel that you were ready to do something like this? Well, they gave me an enormous amount of independence from an early age, and I kept noticing that the more I used that wisely, the more I got. Um, and so I, I had fabulous parents, and they, I think they knew how to manage, you know, a, a curious kid like me. Precocious uh, kid. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they, they, of course, would stand back and hold their breath and hope that it all went well, you know. <laughs> but, um, but I never did anything to break that trust, and I think that's really important. Uh, I, I meet a lot of young people today who said, oh, I wish I could do what you do, but my parents would never let me, you know, and I think, well, that's when it's time for a really serious conversation, a heart-to-heart about what are your fears, what are my fears, what do I think I'm capable of, what do you think I'm not capable of, you know, um, because... Ultimately, parents just want you to be happy and safe. Uh, and if you can prove that that's capable uh, and, and quite doable within your idea of wherever you want to go, whatever you want to do, there are there are ways to make that happen. Well, and yeah, I would also say probably if you have parents that maybe didn't have trust at first is to take baby steps and show them that you are capable and, and trustworthy on something a little closer to home. But um, I think there is such a difference between how you experience things, obviously, when you're a teenager as opposed to your 20s, 30s and beyond that those, when you are still so formative, I mean, they are going to have just a gigantic impact on the rest of your life. And they obviously did because you went on to college and um, went to school in the States and then you went to graduate school in Cairo? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Well, I had a huge shift at school. So as I already said, I was doing all the science research um, and was getting a lot of acclaim for all this genetics work that I was doing at a young age. Um, But my heart knew that something wasn't right. Uh, 
that there this that I might not want to actually spend my whole life pipetting in a lab, you know. <laughs> um, so I had this. You just never know how life is going to hand you that next thing. And I had to take a literature class in the midst of all of my science classes. And the one that fit into my schedule was called Modern Arabic Literature and Culture. And I didn't really know anything about the Arab world at the time, but it fit in my, in my schedule. And I had heard good things about the teacher, so I thought, well, why not? Um, so uh, September 11th happened while we were in that class. And uh, so we, this class about the Arab world was suddenly, you know, on super drive thinking about the perceptions of the Middle East and you know, what, what was it really like? And so right. one day this girl said, uh, jokingly, <laughs> why don't we take a field trip there and see it for ourselves? And, uh, you know, we're all like, yeah, right. We're not going to, to go to nobody, the Middle East. Yeah, yeah, nobody was going to Egypt right after 9-11. I had yeah. friends that were working there and they were taking it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, well, the teacher said, I think that's a great idea. Let's go. So <laughs> we got the money from the administration and all nine of us went to Lebanon actually uh, for, for spring break that year. Um, and it was an eye-opening experience. I just remember being uh, in the refugee camp. I was doing research in a refugee camp over that period. And uh, I got to spend the night in the camp one night by choice. You know, this woman had invited me to stay and all my friends went back to the hotel and I stayed. And it was the, it was the night that changed everything for me because I just remember listening to the sounds of the camp and having that realization that these people don't go home. You know, they've been there for almost 50 years, or actually now over 50 years, right. and they don't go home. And there was just this injustice that I was feeling um, and this fact of, I'm so lucky I have this ticket out of here. Any, any time I want to go, you know, I have this American passport that protects me and, uh, it just didn't seem fair. So that's really, that was the change. I came back from that, called my parents and said, Hey, guess what? I'm not going to be a doctor after all. <laughs> I changed my <laughs> mind. I'm going to be a humanitarian aid worker. Um, and in their style, they supported that as well and said, <laughs> cool, <laughs> good luck. You know, that, but was I, a, um, yeah. that was the transition point for me in high school, I'm sorry, in college. And, uh, you just, I, you just need to go with the gut instincts, you know, and I never looked back, never wondered if, if uh, medicine was actually the right path because it just didn't feel right in my gut. Well, uh, and also, doesn't that bring up that I think you need to be open. Sometimes things will come into your life and you will ignore them or you won't, you won't give them enough regard to figure out if, um, if they speak to you. And because we are presented with a, with a lot of opportunities that, that we don't even realize and, um, and you have to be ready to jump on them and, and say, yeah, let's see what, what it's all about. It, well, it's, it's scary to jump track when you've invested so much of your time in one thing. I mean, sure. I was six years into research and already did all, almost all of my pre-med requirements, you know, and suddenly I changed majors and organic chemistry became an elective on my schedule. And you're just thinking, what am I doing? Right. I've already invested so much of my life in this. But um, you have a lot more life to live. And I know a lot of my friends who were in the pre-med program with me and thought, oh, well, I don't love it, but I'll stick it out. And some of them are doctors now, some of them aren't, some of them are in major debt and wish they weren't, you know, it's, it's a tough call. Well, that is the other thing too, though, is um, it's really never too late unless you've lost your health to, to explore something new and sunk, you know, forget about sunk costs. You have to go with what, what you believe in. I, I mean, myself, yeah, I changed my major my last year of college. Um, (laughs) so I, I understand that completely. And, and you do, you will get people questioning you and, you know, thank goodness you did have the support of your parents because oftentimes those who love you the most will hold you back the most as well. So it's important. Yeah. Listen to your gut and, and, um, and really, I mean, because in college, how much do you really truly know yourself? Um, and these things evolve anyway, even after college and beyond. So that's, really a wonderful lesson for people to think about. Yeah, I think you're right. At 22, even I mean, you're still just at the beginning stage of learning who you are and what you want, what's important. 
I encourage all 20-somethings to not even think about graduate school until 25 because you need those first few years to really sort it out before you commit yourself to a, a path that might put you in debt. You know? Right. Have have a little life experience. Go out there and particularly travel or do something like that. Yeah. Because And go way out of your element because only then when you're truly tested do you, does your true self come out? And it can be good, bad, ugly, whatever it is, you'll know what it is. That's um, right. Well, and, and then it's interesting because you did go into humanitarian aid. Um, you had field experience with Save the Children in Kenya and Somalia. And something really unique happened to change your vision again with that. You want to talk about that? Yeah, it was a series of transition points in my life that were pretty close together and that I thought I was sure I wanted to be a humanitarian aid worker. It seemed like the right thing to do is a way that I could deal with that injustice that I had seen in Lebanon. So I created my own internship at that time. Uh, Save the Children didn't have formalized internships at all. So I just got in touch with the right person and said, look, I want to be abroad this, this summer with you guys. I will pay my way to get there. Um, what can you do? And one of their great um, directors there uh, set up an opportunity with the regional manager in East Africa um, doing child protection work. And so here I was at 20 years old being sent to a refugee camp to do research on some of the most horrible things you could imagine, like rape and abuse and child labor and things like that. These were really serious topics that I was covering. Fortunately, I was with a consultant, but she she wasn't much better at this stuff than I was as a young, untrained researcher. Um, and I had uh, some trepidation kind of as I saw the way that we were operating the field, the way that the normal NGOs were doing their work, and uh, one day I was interviewing a uh, classroom full of refugee boys in, in one of the refugee camps, and I said, all right, guys, tell me, what are some of the problems here? What are you dealing with? And they were kind of telling me what I expected to hear, you know, just kind of form formal answers, and I, I knew that I wasn't getting to the meat of what was going on, and I said, I kind of gave them this look like, all right, cut the crap, like, tell me what's going on, and there was a silence for a while, kind of eerie silence, and finally this kid in the back stood up and said, a lot of aid workers come and go and nothing ever changes. And if the aid was actually effective, we wouldn't still be living like this. So do you really think you have the answer to our problems? Wow. And it was the moment of obligation for me. It was the moment of truth. It hit me so hard. Right. And, uh, you know, the normal reaction would be like, well, you don't understand. I know what you, you know. You know. But I, I paused and I'm so glad that I did because I had the ability to collect myself and say, tell me more. You know, and because I, I suddenly realized in that moment that as an aid worker, I very well w could be part of their problem, um, that we didn't have the answers necessarily. We weren't giving them effective solutions. They had been lingering in this camp for 20 years. Nothing had changed. Um, and so, yeah, that was the wake up call for me. So I, 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 in a short period of time, I went from wanting to save the world to realizing that the mechanisms that were attempting to save the world were completely flawed and I needed to do something about that. Well, and just an aside there, what's interesting is because of your age, probably being so young, 20 years old, he probably had the ability to get up and face someone who's around his age. And that is kind of interesting. You might not have had that experience if you'd done that at a later age and gone in front of those people. But um, did you share this with the, um, you know, the, the NGO and, and um, or did you kind of serve out the rest of your time and then kind of have it percolate in your head about how this was going to change your life and what you were going to do next. No, I definitely shared it. I, I'm not very good at keeping my mouth shut generally. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I not only shared it with the people in East Africa, but also came home and wrote a pretty scathing memo to um, the, the head administration of Save the Children and got no response. They were kind of like, mm -hmm. thank you. 
we've right. heard it before. We're not interested, you know. And that was that was kind of for me the nail in the coffin, saying, "All right, this is a problem. We can't we can't sweep this kind of stuff under the rug when there it's clear that the people that we're trying to serve are not being properly served by this aid." Um, I saw a lot of waste and abuse, and um, I saw um, you know a lot of misallocations of funds, things like that. And, well, you know, it's interesting because I do, I have a segment on my website for people who want to work with the UN and, and some of these big NGOs. And I, and, um, I can see both sides of it because I, I agree. It's funny because the friends that I have that work in the field, they do tell me um, of those issues and then as well of some of the face-to-face things that they've been able to do. And it's probably um, a little bit like, um, so in some aid organizations, that's the only way you could go in there. Like you couldn't go into that refugee camp on your own. Um, but it, 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 it just brings up sort of the interesting conundrum of, um, you know, there are, there are the face-to-face things that happen that do good. And then there's the giant sort of, you know, octopus that is useless. So I, that kind of brings me to your next thing, which is you decided that you were going to, um, make a film about what was going on with international aid and how it can be more effective. Now, how did you come up with this idea? Well, you know, it came back from uh, Africa. I had not only worked for Save the Children, but then studied abroad in Uganda. And I really thought at that point that the best thing I could do for the developing world was stay out of it. I felt they didn't need me. I wasn't offering anything for them. Um, and I, they really had the solutions to their own problems. I didn't feel like they needed some other well-intentioned white lady hanging out trying to, you know, do good. Right. Uh, so I started working exclusively in the U.S. And for the final two years of my college, I only worked in the U.S. with resettled refugees in North Carolina. And um, But then there was this kind of this urge in me saying, maybe there's something I could do. So I had the great fortune to be selected as a Fulbright Scholar, and that's what took me to Egypt um, the year after I graduated from, from my undergrad. And um, uh, for the Fulbright's great. I highly recommend everyone apply because it's so wonderful to go into a country with a really clear understanding that you're not there to help, you're there to research and to um, you know learn more about the people and, and their, their country and it's it's a more, in my opinion, effective way to go about uh, learning and exploring. More like an observer that's allowing them to tell you what they need rather than going there and telling them what they need. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, I think in general, in travel, you really do need to go in as a learner more than a helper. Um, but uh, yes, I had that great opportunity. I studied under one of the pioneering aid critics, Barbara Harrell Bond, and she kind of gave me the green flag to say, you know, it's all right to question this. At that time, it was very, very taboo to talk about uh, aid not working. It's hard to believe that today because everyone can talk about it now, but back then it was really, really not acceptable. Well, we've had some huge public failures like with the Red Cross and things like that that brought out what's going on in some of those places, yeah. I think Haiti was the thing that really uh, sealed the deal and being allowed to speak negatively about aid um, because that was just a debacle. But uh, yeah, back then in uh, 2005, it wasn't okay. And so I decided I wanted to explore this more. I wanted to show people what was really going on, and um, I thought I would write a book about it and uh, thought, okay, how do I make a lot of money in a short period of time so I can go around the world for a year? Um, you know, I didn't want to sell out for a few years and do like consulting or something because uh, so many of my friends who went down that road never got out. Once you kind of start getting the, you know, the big paycheck and the right. easy lifestyle, it's very hard to then you know, derail and go and do something else. So. Gilded trap. 
Yeah, so I thought of a different uh, solution, which was becoming a nanny, a live-in nanny. So I didn't have any expenses that year, and I could just pocket you know, the salary that I could get, um, while also doing something I love, which is being around kids. And it, it worked out even better for me, because uh, the children that I was watching were school-aged. And so while they were in school, I was working for free for the International Rescue Committee with refugee children downtown. And um, so I still was getting you know, a lot of professional development during that year, even though my paying job was not the one related to my actual um, you know, professional interest, but it, it worked out great. It was really wonderful. And so I had the money to go around the world. And as I was planning the trip and wanting to make it purposeful, I thought maybe I'll write a book. Um, and I had a, a few inspirations that came along the way that said, no, it should be a film. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, that, yeah. I, uh, and you had never been you have ne- you have you had not been a filmmaker before, so no, I had no experience in it. I was literally reading the manual of the camera on my way to Columbia, <laughs> which was my first stop. And um, yeah, I, I'm a big believer in fake it till you make it and figure it out as you go. So that's that's how that happened. And uh, I went alone, um, and I highly recommend young women try that because there's no better way to not only meet remarkable people because you're a lot less intimidating when you're just one person and when it, as when you're in a group or two people, right. I think people are less likely to come up to you and be helpful or curious. And uh, so oddly I'm not, enough, I feel like you're almost safer traveling as a woman alone around the world than you are in some of our cities. It's an odd little, I yeah, don't know. <laughs> true. People have a wrong, uh, you know, conception of, of the dangers out there. Okay. I'm much more, I'm in much more danger in certain places here than I am anywhere I've been in the world. Um, yeah, so I, I went around the world for a year, 10 countries, I camera in a backpack, and I figured it out. I met with over 60 organizations, really fascinating people, and and really dug into what was working and what wasn't. And these were all small NGOs, or how did you choose who you were going to interview, and how did you get yourself in there? Because they're, they know that you're going to be a skeptic. So, <laughs> Yeah, it would be even harder now that I've kind of made a name for myself right. as a skeptic, but back then I hadn't. Um, yeah. Confidence goes a long way. Um, basically, I, so it was the whole gamut of aid organizations from the very, very tiny grassroots organizations to USAID and everything in between. Um, and, you know, in I guess the way to explain it is that if there's something in it for the other party, they're generally going to be more excited to do it. And so for me, the coming in with the camera and letting them know that I would share the footage with them and things like that, they were more willing to say, okay, that could be worth our time, you know. Um, it's amazing also- what an entree a camera is. I mean, yeah. people want to be on film. It's it's true, and it makes you seem a little bit more serious when you come in with like a professional camera, and you, you know you have your your stuff already set up, even if you don't know how to use it. <laughs> but uh, but one uh, point about you know faking till you make it is that first night of my whole trip, I arrived in Bogota, Colombia, and I was so nervous I was going to lose that camera on my first night, and get stolen from the hostel or something. And I'm very carefully putting it away in the hostel, um, and uh, this young Australian man uh, saw me doing this and kind of started talking. He's like, do you know how to use that? Because <laughs> it, it must have looked like a foreign object in my hands. And uh, I was like, well, actually, no, not really. He's like, well, I'm a filmmaker. You want me to show you? And so that night he sat down with me and uh, showed me everything wow. that I needed to know about filmmaking. And we ended up staying, you know, hanging out the whole month uh, together. And it was great. So you never know. Um, who will come into your life to show you the ropes when you most need it. But I always feel that when you're on the right path, the right people come to help you out. So 
Yeah, okay. talk about serendipity. And also, I think it's it's just being open, open, open yourself. It could be, you know, you could have been really scared and nervous about having that camera and you w- didn't want to, you'd be like, you know, oh no, I'm just, it's no big deal, this camera. But you open yourself up to him and he was like, he could help you, you know? Yeah, yeah. honesty goes so far. Just, yeah. I, I just am it's okay honest. to be vulnerable or wrong or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it was a fascinating year. Um, uh, the way that like the connections worked out is I probably had a, I knew the start and end date of every country, uh, cause I, I was having some pretty crazy flights that I needed to arrange. Um, but the, the in between was kind of up in the air and that made it really fun. So it still felt spontaneous, even though I knew what day I was leaving, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and about half of the contacts had been figured out ahead of time. And then the best ones, the other half were the ones that occurred serendipitously that, you know, meeting somebody at a bus stop or something like that. Right. And it's like, Oh, you should come to my village. And it's like, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, like, and also that's kind of a small world. That whole NGO world is tiny, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a, easy to get connected once you meet one and they know all the others. And this film, so you, you shot it and then you just edit it yourself. And did you... Um, oh, no, no, definitely not. What happened uh, with that? I shot all of it myself, um, 197 hours of footage. Wow. And I came back home with all of that and started the fundraising. And it was hard, you know, I had to make a trailer and kind of bootstrap. And I came really close to being out of money, uh, self-funding the film. And uh, just by incredible fortune, um, this wonderful funder came out of the blue at the exact right moment that I needed and funded the entire post-production of the film. So I was able to hire uh, an editor to do the, the edits. I could never have figured out the editing. Yeah, that's so a big one. you got to have a good editor. Yeah, that they make the yeah. story. They really do, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's how it worked out. It was really fortunate. And then you you kind of moved on to the next thing, right? Because well, you made your film and, you know, some people would think, oh, now she's a filmmaker. But no, that's not really what happened with you. Um, did, was that when you went to um, the Arctic and Antarctica as a photographer? Yeah, but, uh, you know, just looking at the the progression of, of what I've done in my life, there's a bit that doesn't show up on a resume, which is what happened in between those two projects. And that's that, um, my dad passed away. Uh, I was 25 years old. He went in for surgery and he didn't make it. And, um, it was a huge shock to my family and it was just a blow to me. And at the time I was actually in graduate school at Harvard and came back from, and he died, uh, three days before Christmas. And I came back uh, from Christmas break, just feeling like this place that I had dreamed of going my whole life was just not doing it for me you know thinking what are we all here for like you know you could die like my dad just died and yeah I just started to double check of what what is all the success about what am I striving for what really matters um and so I think I, I just needed a reset I needed to get out of you know all all of the striving that I had been in, and um, and just do something a little different. So I became a polar photographer in the Arctic and Antarctica. Um, but this was an absolute fake it till you make it story, and it's one of my <laughs> favorites because I had gone to uh, Antarctica as a tourist on my trip around the world, my original one when I was doing my film series, because I dreamed of getting to all seven continents before the age of 25. So here I am at 24, going to Antarctica as a passenger. It cost me $3,000. I had to work a little extra for that. Yeah, that's and expensive. <laughs> it is expensive. It's the cheapest you can do it for. Yeah, that's, yeah. But um, uh, we had a photographer on board uh, our ship, and I thought, gosh, how do I get her job? That's the best <laughs> job. I wanted that job. <laughs> So uh, I applied uh, for the job, but there was just one little problem. I actually am not a photographer. <laughs> I just 
didn't even own a camera, but I submitted a portfolio on this little point and shoot camera that I'd taken. The photos were beautiful. They really were, but they were on this tiny little point and shoot. Um, I begged the company for a year, uh, just pleaded with them, please, I really want to do this, please let me you know, come. And they called me out of the blue um, about a year later and said, hey, we just had something canceled for the Arctic, can you go? And I thought, yes, definitely. <laughs> and I hung up the phone and thought, oh, crap, I don't know what to do. <laughs> but uh, I figured it all out. I shot most of that first trip on automatic and figured out what the camera was doing. Um, you know, I had to buy the fancy camera and everything, but uh, I ended up getting hired for 11 voyages and, and spent a good year and a half or so as a polar photographer. So, okay. It, and that is a great story because that's another one of, um, just go for it. What do you have to lose? And what if you, yeah. you know, what if you get found out, what's the worst thing? Okay. You're humiliated. Maybe you get fired, whatever you've given it a go. But I do have to ask, cause while you're talking about this stuff, I'm thinking, so have you ever been found out? Have you ever gotten yourself in a situation where you were like, oh, uh oh, not really. Actually, I had I confessed to the guy who had hired me as a polar photographer um, at the end of my eleven contract that when he had hired me, I had no experience. And he's like, "Wow, you really fooled me." Um, but you know, now I get hired professionally as a freelance photographer, and it was really his taking a chance on me then that turned me into a real photographer. So, um, well, no, I. I haven't gotten found out too often. No. You know, I'm always worried about that. You know, and it's not that I. It's usually just that that very very initial period that feels like you're really faking it. You know, or you're learning a new skill, but you pick it up so quickly when you throw yourself into it. You know, when I was going around the world making a film series, I mean, I was feeling really comfortable with the filmmaking a month in after having some great, um, you know, teachers by my side. So right. you pick it up fast when you have no other option but to learn it. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you're, you're the shame of being found out. You are going to work as hard as you can to make, make you an ex expert as soon as you can. <laughs> yeah. And I recommend this for people who are interested in learning a language as well is don't take classes here in the U S just fly to the country and live with a family. And if you want to eat, you're going to learn how to speak the language. You right, know? Right. And that's really the way that I learned Spanish <laughs> is the best way to do it. Yeah, it's funny. It reminds me of someone else I interviewed who was in the Peace Corps, or not in the Peace Corps. She worked for a medical humanitarian organization, and her first job was in Cambodia. And she ate, I think it was chicken and rice, three <laughs> meals a day for a month until she could figure out how to speak. Yeah. And, you know, but you do. It will happen. Yep. Um, so just kind of for people that are listening, if they want to design their own job, do you have sort of um, – a methodology to this, what would you recommend to people? I absolutely do. Um, the first is to dream big. I think a lot of people only look around at what their friends are doing or what is available when they do a quick search online and think that's all that there is out there. I always went sky's the limit and then it can go down from there. Mm -hmm. But you'd be amazed at how many people say yes when you go for the very top. Uh, so definitely dream big and set your sights high. Um, the second is uh, to be creative. You know, I, you have to be a little bit um, confident in just approaching people, but you also have to be creative in the ways that you ask and the way that you craft your story about why you think it's a good idea for you to have this opportunity and what you can give back to them, kind of how it's going to be a win-win. Um, you, you know, you, I think particularly when you're young and trying to create your own opportunities, you really need to convince the people that you're hoping to get hired by um, that you're not going to be a burden on them. So that is when it really is important to convince them that you are trustworthy and responsible and you're not going to go there and just be partying the whole time or whatever. You know, they need to have some faith that they're not going to have to be babysitting you um, if, if you're going out, particularly in an international experience and creating your own internship or your own job. Um, it's really important that you can hold your own and say, look, I'm, I'm a trustworthy person. I'm not going to be a burden in any way. Um, 
And then also, I know this stinks, but it's kind of the way that it is, but don't expect to get paid for the first few times, you know? Um, that's why I would often have side gigs, like I babysat a lot as a kid, and then would use that to travel so that I could do unpaid internships, because usually you do have to pay your dues and kind of get the field experience before you're going to be hired for the real paying job. So be prepared to not uh, assume that the money is going to come from the person that's hiring you or the volunteer position, because it's usually not the case the first few times around. Right. I, yeah, it just made me think of, do what you love and the money will follow. Well, not always. No, not always right yeah, away. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that, that makes me think a little bit about financing. So kind of just bootstrap, do whatever you can and, and, and find unique ways to save the money. You don't want to be caught out unprepared financially either. That's right. Um, and I, there have been so many ways that I've been able to fund my travels, not only in saving up and doing it myself, but also, um, in finding out every single grant opportunity that's out there, can't tell you how many amazing grants I've had. The other thing is, you know, people think that grad school is so expensive, it's impossible to get a scholarship. It's really not. But what got me my scholarship, I had a full ride to Harvard, and what got me that full ride was not because my GREs were like the number one, but it was because I had a story to tell. I actually did my fellowship interview in a village in Laos because I was traveling around the world making this film series. And so if you're living an interesting life, you're much more likely to be uh, you know, open to these scholarship opportunities later on when you want to go and do graduate degrees and things like that. Yeah, that's a very interesting point because so much of um, everything now is um, that there are all these prescribed steps to how to become, um, you know, the best candidate for this or that. But it's not true. People do love an interesting story. They want someone who has kind of, you know, hung it out there on, on a limb. Mm-hmm. And that is, they know that you are going to do whatever it takes to to fulfill whatever they're giving you. So that I, that's a huge thing. Yeah. And, and what about sort of keeping the faith, um, your motivation, or, or what would you give as advice to someone who, it seems so daunting. I mean, you know, you, if you look at your whole life, you're like, oh, I'm, how did you do that? But if you talk about it, it was steps. It's steps that got you through these things and, and enabled you to do these things. Yeah, it is steps. And I remember a distinct moment when I was in Oxford at 16, have come to having this aha moment of saying, we have a choice in life. You can either be ordinary or extraordinary. <laughs> and I felt like having an extraordinary life, doing things differently. And I was willing to take the risk. Uh, I was willing to fail. I was willing to fall in love and have it not work. But I was, I really felt that the benefits outweighed the costs. And so, um, I keep reminding myself almost every day that we only have one go at this life. You know, how are you going to spend those days? What are you going to do? How, who do you want to surround yourself with? What, do you, what kind of meaning are you going to bring to the world? Um, and I don't necessarily recommend that everybody do it the way I did. I kind of went hardcore in my 20s. You know, <laughs> I, mean, I did a lot. wrote a book by 30 and, you know, made a film series and had all of these degrees and stuff. And um, that was maybe a little more intense than it needed to be, but, uh, but you know, I, it was fabulous too. And now in my thirties, I'm really feeling the, the slowdown a little bit of, of wanting to be in one place and cultivate, um, close friendships with people in my community and to nurture, um, my relationship with the love of my life and, you know, kind of take time for all of that. So, uh, I say go do the f- incredible, crazy travels in your twenties, uh, do them later in life too. I'm so inspired by older women who are, um, you know, kind of uh, renewing themselves and in, in doing some of these great adventures uh, in retirement. But um, yeah, we only have one chance at this, so choose wisely. 
I love that. Well, that's a great way to end. Thank you so much, Tori. And I can't wait to find out what your next adventure will be. I'm sure it'll be amazing. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Thanks so much. For more information about Tori, go to chakalife.com.